Hi everyone and welcome back to Finding Fair Health podcast. We haven't released an episode for a while but we will get episodes out when we can. There are lots of updates on the Fair Health website including blog posts and modules so please do check these out if you haven't already. For this episode I really love chatting to Fazan Hussein. You can really feel how important it is for her to make a difference on an individual basis for her patients but also how she thinks about her patients in their population context of Newham in London, where she lives and works. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. I feel like I'm being really greedy this evening because I'm stealing more of Fazana's time. She has literally just done a session for the Fair Health Trailblazer GPs. She was too amazing to not ask her to have a chat for the podcast episode. She is a super busy lady, a mum, PCN lead locally, co-chair of the National Primary Care Network Federation, NHS Confederation, and an all-time top GP in a really deprived part of London, Newham. It's an area which had one of the highest death rates of COVID during the first wave. I know Fazana is tip-top, not only because she, you can't help but want her to be your GP when you meet her, but because she was also awarded GP of the Year at the 2019 General Practice Awards, which put her on a giant billboard in the middle of Piccadilly Circus. So, Fazana, it's December. I can't believe it's December. Um, how have we got here <laughs> after what has been a very, very strange, um, very strange year? How are you doing? Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so delighted to be here. And uh, where has the year gone when you were just talking about the GP awards? It's just been a year. It was end of November 2019. And uh, in the middle of all the craziness and COVID, because the the new awards uh, are going to be deferred to March, I am so delighted that I am still reigning just because of the pandemic. So I'm the I'm the longest GP of the year in history. So I'm dead chuffed. But but. Where has the year gone? Gosh, when we think about going back to March uh, and just pre-pandemic, it, it feels like it was a different lifetime. And uh, it's been so busy in general practice, but I have to say, Rachel, probably one of the most exciting and uh, innovative years for me, definitely. Wow, that, that's because that's, it's, it's been such a sad and harrowing year, I think, for a lot of us. And there's been so much to be sad about. And I think we, a lot of the time, we focus quite a lot on that. And it'd be really, it's nice to actually hear some positive stuff. So thanks, Susanna. So what have been your highlights of the year then? Yeah, so what have been the highlights? So, you know, we, you're so right. I mean, that we've all thought about and many of us have experienced death. And I worked with, you know, sadly, the fifth GP in the country who passed away with somebody I knew. Um, but, you know, silver linings. Um, Rachel, I think in terms of innovation, when I just think about my practice, Project Surgery, um, 5000 list, I've been running that since 2003. So some innovations that I think we would never have made otherwise. So as soon as lockdown hit, we saw that our childhood immunization rates were going down, were going down to 25% of what they used to be because understandably parents and carers were scared to bring their babies out, um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a lockdown. And I thought, crikey, what are we going to do? We're in the middle of an infectious disease and we might be, 
resurging more infectious diseases like measles, mumps, rubella. So we just thought about doing a drive-through clinic and thinking about how we reduce that face-to-face -face contact time. So reducing that risk of spread of COVID from 10 minutes to two minutes. And the drive-through clinic was born. And so now um, our little ones, like their parents drive them in and we've just cut up the consultation into three parts. So the first bit where the nurse does all the explaining is done on the telephone and then all the record keeping is done um, without the, the little one and, and the parents there. So the actual face-to-face -face jabbing is only two minutes. So obviously we've reduced the risk of COVID transmission down to you know one-fifth of what it was and it's also protected my staff because I work in, a, in a, an area where we have high BAME staff. I don't think we would ever have done that really um, and then we adapted it because not all of Newham have cars obviously where we're so you know financially deprived place so we, we class up buggies and pushchairs as vehicles as well you can bring them in and we'll we'll jab little one in the buggy and um and that then we followed that model for flu vaccinations and it seemed to have captured the imagination of uh, NHS England and you know lots of people modeled that so that was a, an amazing innovation that I just don't think would have happened without the, the, the need um, then I guess the second one is um, online triage we had had the facility for online triage a year before we were a bit like yeah we'll do it maybe the patients don't like it maybe they do maybe we don't like it maybe we do and we used to get about five six online triages as soon as covid hit of course not only were people in lockdown half my team and we're a team of 10 were also isolating either you know somebody in the family had uh, got covid symptoms or they themselves had mild covid symptoms and i thought we're not going to stay open with only three people in the building. So, so like many practices across the country, we, we had laptops and remote working, but we went to online triage because we thought actually our patients then, most of them can contact us even if we are not, most of us are not there and they can contact us 24 hours a day because you probably know, Rachel, many, many people thought that general practice was closed during the first lockdown because the, the doors were closed. They thought that the whole uh, general practice was shut and I wanted to make sure that our patients still had access to healthcare for non-COVID things and with online they can um, you know message us 24 7 you know it's a seven day a week service which we were never able to provide before and we did that in three days which we would never have done and we continue now and it, you know it was great just last Saturday night just to, I just logged on for a minute just to see people being able to contact us on a Saturday night at 10 o'clock which we were never able to do I mean we don't pick that up till Monday but I mean they just weren't able to do that before they would wait till Monday morning or go to casualty we weren't providing that level of great access to general practice. So I think they're just two examples of innovations that happened because of COVID that I wouldn't have done otherwise. So sometimes that burning platform does give us that ambition and that kick up the backside to do it, I think, for me. Yeah, it's interesting that those, when, when something's going wrong, there's um, some, yeah, massive silver linings that come out of it. Fazana, I'd love to hear a bit about your practice population and, yeah, and what you love about working in Newham. Well, thank you. So um, Newham is one of the most deprived uh, boroughs in London out of our 33. We, we were... Um, 
second most deprived and then the Olympics happened in 2012 and brought us up to the 23rd um, um, least deprived which is quite good but what's interesting about New Women like many other places is that we have this uh, pocket of wonderfulness near the, the Olympic Village site and I live about a mile away from that in Newham I'm in lovely Stratford but then still pockets of huge deprivation so where I work in Plasto it's only a mile away from Stratford but huge huge um, poverty and, and, and deprivation um, I, I haven't done a, a recent survey but um, about five years ago 90% um, of my population were out of work and if I just put that in context for you only a hundred only two just under 200 198 of them are over 65 out of a population of um, 5,000 and obviously we've got a lot, a lot of kids but most of them are working age so if you think about how many the majority are, are not working we're a very young borough Rachel so um, we've got um, uh, only 6% over 65s um, despite that we have a normal prevalence of diabetes we have a normal prevalence of heart disease so what this shows is that our um, community is getting sick younger and dying younger we're just not living that long um, and um, I guess many of us will, heard, will have heard of the, the, the Marmot Review and Marmot 10 years on and um, that was published this year. One of the sad things about that uh, was poignant that if you're a, a woman living in a, a deprived area, your, your um, life expectancy has gone down. It hasn't gone up. Uh, and I'm, you know, sitting here talking to you from East London, you know, one of the most iconic cities in the whole world. Um, so for me, that's food for thought. And I've, I, I trained in Newham as a GP. I always worked in Newham and, and I've grown to love it. And, and I think I didn't always love it. Um, what, you know, when I first came to Newham, so I grew up in Lancashire and I thought it's not very green here, is it? Um, and um, there's quite a lot of graffiti here, isn't there? And, and then I sort of, I met the people and my patients are so grateful, Rachel. They're so grateful for everything. And um, when we talk about the big things like trying to reduce um, cardiovascular disease deaths, trying to reduce cancers. Newham is again competing with Brent, another London borough, to be um, bottom of the pile for late cancer diagnosis. Sadly, we just don't diagnose our cancers early enough, so we have huge mortality. But when we think about those biggies that, that you know, cause death, I sometimes think we ignore the small things. So it's a very small thing that would sort of never hit the papers. But, but I, I had a, a 43 year old lady who I had given some, she's a Bangladeshi lady who only spoke Bengali and, and I can speak some Bengali, my parents are from Bangladesh. And um, she had heavy periods and I gave her some um, tranexamic acid, it took me under five minutes on a telephone consultation. She, she rang again the following week and I thought, oh God, what now? <laughs> and and she, she rang just to say, I just wanted to thank you because I, I've had heavy periods since I started my periods at the age of 12. So, you know, pretty much 30 years of my life. And I haven't been able to go out on those days because it's been so bad. And you've absolutely given me a new lease of life. And I've never been able to tell anybody because I, I had a male GP and I was a bit shy to tell him. And um, 
I didn't even want my husband to tell him. And I just thought, gosh, what a difference I've made in one prescription. That woman's whole life has changed. Those things really keep me going. I, I really enjoy that uh, because to think that you can make that, that amount of difference in, in a five-minute consultation. I love that, Fazana. You've said to purport to me that it wasn't love at first sight working in an area of deprivation and kind of arriving and it not being a green area and that sort of thing. And I just, I do just wonder, it does, do you think working in an area of deprivation is something that has to grow on GPs or do you think it's something that GPs can just love instantly? It certainly grew on me. Um, let's just say I'm a bit of a snob and I always thought I would be living in my six bedroom house with, you know, green fields around. And that, that, that's not really what happens in New and East London. Um, and then there are some real practical things. So um, when I mean, my kids are teen, late teens now, but um, and, and now we've got some great schools in Newham, but before we didn't. So um, I, 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 I lived in Newham when I first got married and then we moved out just um, to the borough next door, like Redbridge for the schools, basically, we still worked in Newham. So, so I can fully understand that from a, 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 you know, a young doctor's perspective, there's a lot of things to consider when you're working in, in a, a deprived area. And of course, London is still relatively expensive to live in. Um, so so that's, that there were a lot of those factors. But I think it was all blown away by the fact that the work is so meaningful and um, you see those results. I'm someone who's a bit imp impatient. I like to see the results. And you know, this five minute consultation I described, I can really see a life changing result on that. Um, for someone else, it might not make that much difference to give them a bit of tranexamic acid, but for this woman, it changed her life. And, and I think that that gives us, it gives me such a, a kick, you know, I might not be in there doing trauma surgery to save a life, but actually I made a huge impact on somebody's quality of life. And I'm not sure I would see that in another area. No, that's so interesting. And I love that story because it's such a, well, it's a very, um, it's quite a simple story to explain just how uh, just such a little thing can make an impact on someone's life. And I, I do just wonder, Fazanit, I don't know, having worked with trans translators and things, sometimes like, I feel like I'm kind of shortchanging a patient a bit. And actually, when you're doing a, set, a conversation in English or if you're doing um, a conversation with someone when you've got, we've got more time, potentially in an area of um, less deprivation, you can sometimes feel like you're doing a better job. And um, I wonder whether you ever have that feeling where you kind of feel like you're not you're not doing a very good job because you're in a rush all the time and you're overworked and that sort of thing. And that sort of impact on your well-being and feeling of meaningful work as a GP. Yes, that's a really good point, isn't it? And what we measure and progress and outcomes. So I have a friend who works in a very leafy green area and he was telling me, Oh, for us, it's so easy to get our, our cancer cytology targets, the smear test, um, because uh, either everybody comes in and the few that don't come in have had it done privately and they just give me their letters. And, and for me to try and keep cytology rates up to 80% is a constant, you know, we're on it all the time, just with the population. And, you know, if you can't eat, the last thing you're thinking of is, do I need to go in for a smear test for a, a cancer that I may have or may not have? We know that are more deprived populations find preventative care engagement much harder uh, because that's not the first thing on their mind. So um, I think I would be lying if I said it wasn't hard work, but I think there are those things that challenge me and stretch me. So for me, 
reaching the target is great, but actually having one individual um, be part of that is so big because so much work has gone into that. So for me to reach a 70% target is so massive on cytology because we know that actually it's those people, you know, the inverse care law, that people that need care actually get it least and so helping them is so much more meaningful I think interesting about the translated uh, consultation because they do take more time and um, it stretched my thinking out of the box a few years ago I was asking for um, they do do CBT now in different languages but I was asking for some psychological therapy in different languages and one of the psychologists said to me it's actually very hard to do that in a different language because it's not just language it's the whole cultural and health beliefs of psychological health and sort of that stretched me um, and it makes me want to work in an area like this even more when I think well there's a gap there in mental health provision for certain cultures what are we doing about that um, so I turn it on its head and think yes it's harder work but it's um, it, it's so much more interesting for me to, to, to think how, how, how do you relate to somebody, I don't speak, you know, Somali, how do I relate to somebody in Somali who's possibly been a victim of torture, who may not have the words that we would use in our British CBT model? How do you do that? And, you know, thinking about, and ultimately I think human to human interaction transcends any language. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's amazing actually to see when if you when you do stop and you do actually make that time in your day to make those human connections. It's really, really rewarding, isn't it? And I think that's the lovely thing about being a GP uh, in an area like this, because, OK, if you haven't got the CBT and you haven't got all your tools, your patients, certainly I, I'm sure yours, Rachel and mine, know that we care. And that is absolutely priceless. Yeah, 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 completely. Fazana, I've heard you. Um, I've heard you before describe your practice and your well, your practice as your baby and your patients as your babies, <laughs> along with <laughs> along with um your te now teenage less so babies. Is that something you think you've developed over time? That feeling that of ownership of your practice and your practice population, or do you think you had that from the word go? Um, I think I was lucky with the size, Rachel. Five thousand is a nice size, and there's been a, uh, some research on that. That sort of three to five thousand, um, and and the team size of about 10 I think is it um oh I can't remember who it is now somebody for some famous person has said that it's called the two pizza rule if you can feed your team on two pizzas that's a good sized team so like 10 people so we've got the size gives us a family feel about it as well and I know that a lot of larger practices now split up into micro teams um, I think something about the fact that we were born out of a community's need because we were actually originally funded there, there was no practice we were a greenfield site so we were we opened that practice uh, and were funded by an urban regeneration fund and they asked the community what do you want here do you want a school do you want this do you want that and they all said we want a doctor's surgery so knowing that we were born in 2003 from the wants of a community our local community was um i think was really nice and, and i do feel a real ownership and i think that's something that's nice about working in a small practice and um i worry a bit that we'll lose that with the direction of travel you know i'm hoping with primary care networks practices will still have that small family feel because it's 
it's not always the direction of travel now. Um, but yeah, I do, I do feel a sense of ownership. And I think it's because we know them. It's again, that those risks. I have under 200 over 65s. So I know most of them. I know where they live. I, I know what their lounges are like. It, it makes a difference. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and Fazani, you've had a time you've had a time when you were the sole partner at your practice, but with an incredible team. So you're even though it's a small team of ten, you've had an incredible team supporting you along the way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So originally we were two partners, um, myself and Peter Jones, and then tragically he he died in 2013, and we lost him to suicide. And since then, um, I have been a sole partner, so I've got great salaried support. I've got three fantastic part-time salaried GPs that work with me, but I, I, I am um, the, a single-handed GP. And, and I, I think maybe that makes me like feel like more like they're my babies because actually, you know, the, these are my patients and, and I feel very, um, I, I feel responsible for them. I, I care for them as well. Um, and I think, um, I think there is something really nice about that. It's more than a job, it's part of my life. Um, and I like that. I say that in a very positive way. That's so interesting. Once you get that ownership of something, whether when it becomes kind of an amalgamation of work and life, do you ever do you ever find that that's too much? So I don't know. For example, sending an emails at midnight, that sort of thing. Um, do you ever find that's too much? And how, in terms of from I suppose from a leadership point of view, how does that how does that have an effect on your team and going forward and things like that? Because if, I suppose if you're working all hours of the day, is there an expectation for your team to do that as well? Or how does that work? So I think one of the real advantages of being a single-handed GP is, of course, I have a lot of autonomy. So I, I, I may send an email at midnight, but then the next morning I might think, actually, you know what, I'm going to just have a coaching session this morning or actually, um, as today, you know, the, the greatest thing for me about lockdown finishing is that I now again have two eyebrows, not just a unibrow. So I have to go and get my <laughs> eyebrows done. So, so that was like an emergency, forget emergency GP appointment. I needed an emergency eyebrow threading appointment. So having um, some autonomy over my day really helps. Um, I think with staff, um, I, I, I'm quite uh, clear that I'm not expecting them to work uh, outside their hours. Interestingly, some of my staff will do emails and, and the, the times that we're living in, it's just something to be aware. It's a good point you raised for leaders just to explicitly say that although I'm sending you this email, and I know Nikki Kanani does this very well, or although I'm sending you this email at like oh, an ungodly hour, I'm not expecting you to answer, you know, out of hours. We have a practice WhatsApp, there's WhatsApp groups everywhere, and you do find that people are answering, you know, 10, 11 at night. But I think it's really important to tell your team that that's not an expectation because I like working at midnight but then like to get my emergency eyebrows done at 9 30 in the morning that that might not be everybody's cup of tea that's so great to hear actually um Fazana, because it's yeah it's as someone early in your career it can feel like you yeah you should be working at all hours and it's actually really nice to hear that um, so you can go and get your eyebrows done and also get your work fitted in at the same time so thank you. definitely and i think it's really important as um we we hit the tech more and more tech because when I qualified obviously we just didn't have this number of emails coming through or the whatsapp groups coming through and I think it's really important point you raise because you know we could be working literally 24 7 and it is important just to think about what suits you and if you want to get your eyebrows done 
done it half nine, then do it. <laughs> um, well, Fazana, you're increasingly becoming a role model to, I know, a lot of young GPs across the country. And um, you're flying a, a flag really for women and for BAME women as well. Does that feel like a lot of pressure at some points, knowing that you're a role model and you're kind of um, flying that flag? Actually, it's a good question. Yes, thank you. It has. Uh, it, it has. Uh, particularly, Rachel, I think, um, BAME woman, because um, my ethnicity is interesting because my parents are from Bangladesh, but I, I was born in, in, um, in Yorkshire and I spent all my life in Lancashire. We moved when I was 10 months old. So it's been quite interesting for me because, um, you know, there are elements of obviously, um, uh, you know, I can speak some Bengali, not as well as English. Um, and, you know, I love my Indian food. Um, but, but then, you know, I would describe my home as, as Preston in Lancashire. So it's been really interesting because BAME, of course, is not sort of a homogenous thing in itself either, is it? And, you know, and we have international medical graduates and we have, uh, you know, people who are Afro-Caribbean and we have South Asians. Um, sometimes it has felt for me personally, I've had to soul search a bit about what am I representing and, um, you know, am I, am I doing it right? And then I've just thought, I can only be me, you know, I, I can only be who I am and, and ultimately I can only have my voice and I, I hope that that tunes in with other people's but it might not and it might not be their experience no definitely and i think you can only be you Fazana. and i think that's yeah a wonderful thing to be so yeah and thank you for um being that amazing role model so Fazana, i really wanted to ask you a little bit because i know that you that um i could speak to you all day about the stuff that you do on a sort of practice level but you do have a role nationally and I personally find it quite interesting sort of managing the kind of national versus local level stuff when it comes to tackling health inequalities. So there's obviously a lot of stuff that we can do on the ground as GPs, but also there's lots of stuff that can change sort of nationally and some from a policy level and things as well. So it can be quite difficult to focus your efforts from that point of view. And I know you've got you're, you're, you're involved in both. How do you manage this? Um, this is still a work in progress for me, Rachel, but uh, I took the national role um, uh, officially in April, so it started about February time, um, and, and I, am, I am getting better with my um, time management. It hasn't been as great as it should be, but, but I am getting better, and, and that's also with great practice support, so I have got great support at the, the practice for, for clinical work. Um, and I do find it ties in um, Rachel so what I really like about it is when, when I think about the example I gave of my five minute uh, you know heavy period um, uh, consultation and how it changed her life and then working at a national level we know that for primary care networks there's a new what we call an enhanced service coming out next year from NHS England that's on health inequalities and as a member as co-chair of the PCN network we were able to, to look at that and comment on it and, and be the critical friends to NHS England and that was great for me to, to think that actually we were able to shape that policy and we're able to shape what that looks like so that I'm not just improving the life of like one patient but we might be able to do something for people all across the country uh, and that's 
really exciting for me to, to, to actually see that policy and then see how that really feeds in on delivery or, or on the ground. So um, it's quite seamless. I really like it. I don't think I could do one without the other because I think if I did it without having the clinical focus, it would lose its meaning. I wouldn't see the end product. Um, and I wouldn't have the reach if I was not doing the national role. So it kind of fits in quite nicely for me. And then with the primary care network role in the middle there, looking after 67,000 residents, so a bit bigger than practice level, kind of three little tiers makes, um, tier might be the wrong word at this point in our lives with the pandemic going on, but it's like three little sections that seem to fit in quite nicely, like Russian dolls. It's nice to hear actually that you can manage to sort of make it really seamless, which is brilliant. Um, do you ever find that you have pressure kind of nationally to apply stuff at a local level? Interestingly, Rachel, my personal experience of has been the other way around. It's like, come on, guys, let's do this. Um, and I sometimes forget that my knowledge level has increased just because of, you know, consulting and, you know, meeting other fantastic people from uh, across different parts of the country. So it's generally the other way around saying, come on, local people, we can do this. Let's do this. And that brings something back for me in Newham. Um, I just need to remember I think we all need to remember that not everybody is in the same place so we might be passionate about something it might not be everybody's cup of tea so my lesson to myself is just to be a bit more patient as well and help bring people along rather than just you know get annoyed and think why don't they get it yeah no definitely definitely um well are you finding that the, the networks and the development of networks are opening up some opportunities for areas of deprivation definitely definitely so um i'm gosh i could talk to you about this right so i've got a really exciting thing going on at the moment so um with um so sadly last year october 19 um it made the national news actually i had a 15 year old patient he was mine um and we'd known him from birth um got stabbed to death and made the, the national news and in London you know we know that knife crime is just on the increase and we're not the only city but knife crime is a real issue and um, in through one of my national roles I used to sit on the National Association of Primary Care the NAPC I was a board member there um, and um, I met Professor James Kingland who was um, the one of the people who made the primary care home which was the forerunner to today's PCNs uh, sort of he was one of the um, architects of it um, and he said oh Fazana, we're doing this national health inequalities pilot do you want to be the London demonstrator site because I can see you're really keen on that I was like yeah and um, so we just got talking this was um first conversation in February and then of course pandemic hit but we spoke virtually and uh, my networks going to be embarking on that in the new year we're just having our conversations we're talking to council so one of the great things about primary care networks is that we're just we're not just about gps and we're not just about primary care so it's about talking to our councils talking to our hospitals talking to our mental health trust and um, this project that we're doing to reduce knife crime and try and identify those people in primary care those kids that might be at risk has all those people sort of around the table as a GP running a 5,000 list Rachel I wouldn't have been able to do that I wouldn't have enough 
kids. You know, the council wouldn't be able to come and talk to me. It's just I'm too small. But actually, as a network, 67,000 residents, you know, more than an eighth of Newham's population, um, you know, they're interested. So this is a great example of how, how primary care networks can tackle health inequalities. And this is not something we have to do. It's not part of our mandated like enhanced services that we have to deliver. It's just something that um, we want to do um, because it, it's it's going to meet a need for, for our population. So I'm very excited about that because it would never have happened if I wasn't part of a primary care network um, and, I, and I wasn't a clinical director in a primary care network. I see that as well as a massive opportunity to really kind of connect not only with some of those local services but also just a feeling of community as well primary care networks and, and probably I would say we you don't have to be a CD of course um, I say if I wasn't a clinical director but actually that's not true it could be that actually one of our salary GPs in the network might feel uh, passionate about something and they can just bring it along for the network we we sometimes forget um, that you know the network isn't just all about the GP partners and the practice managers the network what belongs to everybody who works in those practices in the network. Yeah, no, fantastic. And yeah, well, th and thank you for all your hard work you've been doing on all of that. And good luck with the, good luck with the, <laughs> the project in the new year, because that sounds absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so, Fasana, there was something you said at the beginning when we were talking about the silver linings of this year. You were talking about digital technology and moving stuff online and also the drive-through stuff. And it made me wonder about trying to create equitable access within areas of deprivation. And do you, have you found that there's been challenges from that point of view? Yes, um, from De definitely, Rachel. And, and the two major challenges are um, one, digital poverty and digital literacy. So to be able to put in an online consultation, you have to have access to a computer or, or a smartphone and not everybody has one. And of course, during lockdown, you can't go to the library either. Um, so we just sort of had a nifty solution to that so we spent 700 pounds of practice money which is ultimately my money because I don't have partners so I was able to do this and bought an iPad and um, said for, for anybody who wants to just pop into ours and use the iPad and do it that way they can because we're still then reducing that COVID risk because they're still not seeing somebody face to face because Newham's had some one of the highest COVID death rates so we still want to make sure uh, because you know we know that COVID has an asymptomatic period doesn't it when you don't have symptoms and you're infective so we still want to reduce that face-to-face -face contact um, with our patients and our doctors who are probably more more at risk of spreading it than anybody else because they're seeing lots of patients um so we we bought an ipad i'm very fortunate with my admin team rachel but i'm sure many people are that they will also help train people um to use it um and it's been really interesting that people have only needed training once or twice and then they know how to to use it it's a bit like i was always scared of using I, i'm not very technologically friendly myself and i i couldn't online shop i i, I just i used to get scared of online shopping and then you know one day like my son helped me with it and then it got saved on favorites and you know now it's really easy I just have to click on favorites so it, it's that sort of thing just to get people familiar with it but I do think that buying the iPad has been really useful because digital poverty is a, a huge issue in mean, we see it in education my son goes to a sixth form in Newman when they sent them home for lockdown you know I think a third of the 
kids didn't have um, laptops so you know the school provided them so it's certainly something to think about because otherwise we'll just be extending that universe care law people that really need it in terms of language Rachel something interesting happened I thought that the language would be an issue online because it's written communication and on the telephone and face-to-face -face we have access to interpreters and what's been really interesting and patients have fed back is that a lot of them have a better grip of written English than spoken English and a lot of them have said because it's not appointment based because it's not you have to come and see Dr Hussain at 10 past nine on a Monday and you've got 20 minutes with an interpreter then you're out the door or, or whatever I know we're not quite as rigid as that but because they can put their consultation in any time they want they can take longer over it and explain their story in a longer fashion I had an Eastern European lady say to me I really like the online because every time you text me something back through Accurex I just put the auto translator on and I get it all in Lithuanian so I want you to do online so I don't want you to speak to me on the phone because I don't know what you're saying half the time and I thought that was really really helpful because I would not have thought about that and she said I don't want all this interpreter all the time because I I like to tell you what I want to tell you so she likes the fact that she can put it in her own words you know whether it's 10 o'clock at night 10 to 10 30 she can write it all down and um, and get it then translated into English and then I'll write to her in English she'll get it translated in Lithuanian so there's been some secondary benefits that I would never have thought of I thought the language barrier would be more of a barrier than than it has been yeah that's fascinating it's, um, and it's nice to hear a <laughs> positive with that as well it's just been a really strange year and Covid has not just shone a light but it's kind of given a big great klaxon drawing attention to health inequalities really and the impact on those living in deprivation and BAME groups but if there's one thing you could do to reduce health inequalities um, if you had that magic genie wish what would that one thing be? I would say let's not forget it let's let's remember that this is an ongoing thing and health inequalities are avoidable they are avoidable they're system made it's not like you've been you know given god-given cancer and it's incurable health inequalities are avoidable they do not need to and they should not exist in a developed country in 2020 my my one wish is that we don't forget and then it that it doesn't go now we've got a covid vaccine coming hopefully this is going to be great news i don't want to see in five years time that I'm hoping COVID will have gone away, but I don't want to see that light that's been shone on it going away. Health inequalities is not a COVID problem. Health inequalities has been a problem and this is the time to sort it out and keep going with that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And Fazana, your one book or resource that you would recommend to someone early in their career who is interested in all of this stuff? Um, I, I'm not a big reader myself, but I have enjoyed reading the Marmot reports. I learned such a lot. And if you don't like reading, um, he, his lecture at last year's um, RCGP's annual conference, I thought was really, it was so moving. He talks about, you know, a fairer world. But, but Marmot's work, I think, I, I hadn't read it before. And once I read it, I, I just... It, it explained health inequalities to me so it made me more passionate about it so I think that that's what I would recommend. 
Thank you, Fazana. It's amazing, actually, how much Marmot gets mentioned as the resource on this podcast. And I really like it because it's so accessible and his recommendations are simple and really easy to digest and actually quite easy to remember, which I actually find really useful taking forward. So I think it's always a really good one to recommend. So thank you. Fazana, I'm absolutely um, yeah, thrilled to have been able to have another chat with you today because it's just always so lovely to chat to you. It's really, really great to hear about some of the practical stuff you're doing on the ground, but also how you are managing to think about that on sort of a bigger population scale, not just in your network, but also getting involved with the PTN Federation as well. And absolutely amazing, the work you're doing and you're continuing to inspire us younger GPs. So thank you so much. And it's great to know that we can send emails at midnight and also go and get our eyebrows done. (laughs) And I just want to say a huge thank you to you. It's been so enjoyable. Where has the time gone? And a thank you to all of you because you're keeping this work going. You know, that's what, you know, you're our hope you're our future so a big thank you to you from me as well thank you thanks for listening everyone i really hope you enjoyed this episode further podcast episodes modules blog posts and more educational resources are available on the fair health website at www.fairhealth.org.uk if you enjoyed the episode please do subscribe so you're updated when we release more episodes It's always lovely to hear from you and thank you for all the comments and feedback we've had about the podcast over the last few years. Please get in touch via Twitter at FairHealthUK or at RMSteen. We're really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.